thank you that we can meet together here in your name. We thank you that we can study your word and we pray for ourselves as we uh, think anew on the ministry of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our friend. Lord, that you would um, inspire us to be uh, more truly his disciples through our study and our conversations tonight. And Lord, we pray for our Prime Minister, who we know will be making an announcement as we are in here studying. Lord, we pray for her that you would uh, continue to strengthen her for the role you have called her to, and give, give wisdom to her and to all of her fellow councillors in the government. Lord, we pray for your blessing upon them. Amen. Please be seated. Meal that they were preparing for and eating and 
that Mark and Matthew both agreed with that. And primary purpose of the Passover meal was to tell the story of how the Hebrew people were once slaves in Egypt and how they were forced to make bricks for Pharaoh. But the Lord God, by His grace and by His power, brought them out of slavery and into freedom, turned their anguish into rejoicing, uh, turned their mourning into feasting, and turned their darkness into light. And the participation in that feast, in that Passover feast, achieves at least three things. First of all, God's mighty deliverance was remembered and proclaimed. Uh, Secondly, in normal household context, the children were taught the faith, and not by just observing, but by actually taking part. Uh, There's even a, a specific role for the children, as you may know, in the telling. And third, each, per- each person there could see that he himself or she herself had been rescued, rescued from Egypt, taken into the story and rescued. There was a, uh, an application of God's redemption in the present for everyone who was there and everyone who was taking part in Passover feast. Part of its charm is that it's very flexible, uh, according to the Mishnah, uh, a record of oral there were even debates in Jesus' day among the rabbis about which order you should do things in and, and what, what things uh, should and shouldn't be done. Debates which persist into Jewish households even today. So it's not unusual to see them arguing over whether you should have a potato and what the potato means. And there are still arguments over exactly what you do. Uh, the, the, the fact that you can express it in different ways from community to community seems to be kind of part of what you do onto the fabric of the feast. But um, if that's its, its charm, its power, the power of the Passover feast lies in the, in the unvarying fact that the telling, what they call the Haggadah, is always about God's redemption of his people from slavery. And it always achieves that uh, by using elements of the meal tell the story. Are you familiar with this? Have you had a, a Passover meal for April Fool's Day? You know what I'm talking about. Great. Uh, it's, uh, it's changed and evolved over the centuries. Uh, but most people agree that the basic elements were there in Jesus' day. Um, the bitter herbs are there for a reason. The salty water is there for a reason. The Telling the story. So you have combined in the Passover things that we often uh, separate. So you have combined eating and worship and fellowship and remembrance and instruction all together in one thing. And then what uh, stands out in, in, in the Gospel account is that Jesus said and did something which were not part of the normal telling. And it's those things that all of the gospel writers focus on for us. So imagine uh, for a moment Jesus and his disciples reclining around the table, they're gathered, they're ready for a meal. And Jesus is taking the traditional role of the Father. He reaches for the first cup, called the Kiddush cup, the cup of sanctification. And everyone is expecting him to say these familiar words Blessed are you, O Lord our God. King of the universe who creates the truth of the vine. But instead, he looks at them and he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And only then does he take hold of the cup and give thanks, which is what they were expecting him to do. But having done that, before they, they eat, again, he, he adds something. Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
Festivals, according to Luke. Before they even have the first sip of the first cup, is he is connected to supper, the Lord's supper, what they are referenced for, not just as the Passover, which looks back, but also to a future feast, which is to come. A feast which will be eaten, where God's kingdom comes in all of its fullness. That's a feast the disciples would have known about very well. It usually gets called the Messiah's Banquet, and it pops up in prophecies in the Old Testament in a number of places, most strikingly here in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. They would have known this well. On this mountain, looking forward, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the crowd that holds all people, the sheep that covers all nations, who will swallow up death forever. It says the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Words and ideas that you probably recognize from the end of the Bible from Revelation chapter 21. So, what controls our understanding of the Lord's Supper is not Passover alone, but looking back, but also the great feast which is to come. If you've ever wondered uh, why the Apostle Paul says about communion, that by it you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, he gets it from Jesus. He gets it from Jesus. The Lord's Supper looks forward as well as back. And in, in seeking to understand it, we need to keep connected to both of those things. The Lord's Supper on the one hand, the Passover on the one hand, looking back, and the Messianic feast looking forward. And I think this has some interesting practical implications. Um, in just about every church I have ever uh, belonged to, I haven't, I haven't heard it here, but I have heard in every other church that I've gone to, uh, it seems today from some people that others in the congregation don't take communion seriously. And what they mean is that some people don't go back to their seat and sit in silence with their heads bowed and meditating on the pain of the cross. Some people go back to their seat and they can't. I've, to be honest with you, never really fully been able to share the concern, if I'm honest, because I don't get the impression that the Messianic banquet will be an occasion for quiet personal meditation. Uh, it looks to me much more like a celebration of God's Call and final restoration of cosmos, where death is banished, where guilt is no more, where sin is gone, where pain and suffering are gone. It's going to be a great celebration. And if the Lord's Supper foreshadows the Bethlehem banquet and finds its fulfillment in the feast, maybe there is a place for singing, playing instruments, maybe as the place you need to talk maybe during communion. Perhaps it depends what we talk about. Maybe not just cooking. Right. Before we um, move on to the next stage of supper, it's worth noting something which, is, again, is thought to be an innovation on Jesus' part. And that is, he takes one cup and gives it to the disciples to share. That's in verse 17. Um, it's difficult to be completely certain. But it seems likely that first century Jewish practice was for everybody to have their own cup. And so Jesus introduces something new here a deeper sense of unity in his supper, the sharing of one cup, dividing it among them. 
we're not told about that particularly by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it seems likely that the, they followed the order of the telling, whatever that was, and who to say, probably including green herbs, Uh, 
just the names of the disciples. I'm moving into Matthew, start with the Mark's Gospel now, because this is where I want to be when we get to Gethsemane. So, Jesus sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. I remember being absolutely fascinated by this scene when I first read it at the age of ten in the Good News Bible that I'd been given for Christmas. I still have it, actually. I might bring it in, because it's nice and thick, and it's got all these people's faces on the front. And I uh, just kind of really liked it, and read the whole thing all the way through. Nobody told me where to start, so I started at the beginning and read it all. And I remember feeling, uh, not all in one line, and I remember feeling um, really fascinated by this, because it sounds kind of close and dagger, don't you think? Something kind of out of a spy story. Jesus sends his disciples into the Holy City to make preparations for the Passover. He tells them to look out for a man carrying a jar of water who will meet them, and a man will take them to a room where a meal will be eaten. If you, uh, if you look at some of the older devotional commentaries, um, the way they tend to take this is that it gives an indication of Jesus' divine foreknowledge. So, this is the great Matthew Henry, and he's not coming to any with this. Nothing could be less the result of human foresight than the events related here. But our Lord knows all things about us before they come to pass. If we admit Him, He will dwell in our hearts. You see, Jesus, because of His divine powers, knows that one of His three disciples gets to Jerusalem. The man who knows what they need will be there carrying a jar of water right at the right moment. Not human foresight, according to Mr. Henry, but divine foreknowledge on the part of Jesus. And if you are raised on these sort of devotional commentaries, you are not going to like me for saying this. Um, so it's worth bearing in mind that I could possibly be wrong. Uh, but it seems to me that it is a, it's a theological mistake to jump so quickly to the conclusion that the best way to understand details like this is on the basis of Jesus' divine knowledge. And because it's a theological mistake, it could end up being partially uh, unhelpful. But the point of the incarnation, surely, the point of God becoming man, was so that God could actually live as a human being. Not so that he could pretend to live like a human being. And if Jesus spent the whole time using his divine special powers, then in what sense can it be said that he lived a truly and fully human life? The, uh, the writers of the Hebrews assured us that Jesus was able to sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 14. But that sounds a little bit hollow if uh, human frailty and human limitations never really truly affected him. And we're going to see more of this as we follow through and when we get to Gethsemane. So, with respect, I, I want to disagree a little bit with Mr. Henry here. Just, just the first sentence. I mean, the sermon credits at the end, but the first sentence, nothing could be less than the result of human foresight than the events here related. Now, I think they are precisely the result of human foresight. Jesus has put this through. Jesus has made plans, he's made arrangements ahead of time. Uh, he's engaged, he has engaged in a bit of cloak and dagger here, and he's needed to, because Jesus' treacherous plot is already underway. You can see that just before in Mark 14, verse 10. The man with the water has been briefed, and he will be expecting the disciples. No shortcuts, no divine shortcuts here. This is genuine, true, human life, and God is truly living it in the person of Jesus. So what could it tell us? Well, Jesus obviously couldn't just give them the address of the house that they needed to go to, because they didn't number houses and buildings like we do. 
In fact, even though they technically do it today, uh, finding a place within the old city of Jerusalem is very difficult, and it's much easier to have someone take you there and show you where you need to go. So I'm going to assume that the man carrying the jar of water was carrying it um, because he did actually need it. Um, water is heavy, isn't it? And if he just needed a way to identify himself to the disciples, I can think of some much less exhausting ways. Wearing a carnation, carrying a copy of that by now at the time, something like that. So I'm guessing he needed it. And if you've got the jar of water and you're walking on the street, it means you've been to a public water source. And in first century Jerusalem, you don't have a great deal of choice when it comes to public water sources that are near the domestic level. So the most likely scenario is that the two disciples go here, to the southeast of the city, at a place called uh, the Pool of Siloam, mentioned in the Gospel, as you know. Um, so they have come from Bethany. Remember that they're staying in Bethany this week, and they've come from Bethany. Here we go. It all makes sense. Come this way, interestingly. Go down to the major, the major public water source, the Pool of Siloam. This pool was uncovered uh, partly 15 years ago. So if you um, if you visit Jerusalem today, you can go and look at it. And so uh, these are the, the steps leading down into the pool. The pool is here, and uh, the rest of the pool is under this garden to the left. Uh, the garden belongs to the Greek Orthodox Church. They have a lot of internal politics which they can't resolve, and so the rest of it can't be dug out. But they all want it to be, so eventually when they resolve these differences that they have, probably the rest of the pool of Siloam will be uncovered and they'll just see it all. So, this is what I think. They meet the man with the jar of the water here at the pool of Siloam, and then they go from there to the house of the Last Supper. So looking again at this map, uh, they met him here. The traditional site for the house of the Last Supper is all the way up the hill, up here. Uh, if you, it's a little place called the Pinnacle. If you visited today, uh, bizarrely, you've got, um, has anyone been? You've got the, the Tudor Daisy downstairs. Um, you've got the room for last supper upstairs. So you've got Jews visiting the downstairs and Christians visiting the upstairs. And sometimes you get a bit of a barge So a few years ago, um, at Pentecost, some Jewish extremists tried to bar the Christians uh, from going up into the, into the upstairs room. All of that tension is in great shame because those identifications are due to over imagination of the crusaders. Uh, there's no way on earth that the house there is the Tudor David. Absolutely no way on earth that's the Tudor David. And the chances of it being the right place for the site of the Last, last Supper are almost as remote. You've got two fake sites, one building, and a lot of tension over it. Great. Let me show you this photo. So, this is a photo that I took from down at the Pool of Siloam, looking up the hill to the traditional site of the Last looking up the, the western hill. So if you're looking at the map, again, if you're looking at, we're, we're down here as, as we look at this photo, and we're looking up this way, okay? So, uh, the traditional site of the, of the, the Last Supper is, is next to the door of St. Abbey, which is all the way up here. Okay. That is a very long way to walk with a jar of water. It is a very long way to walk with a jar of water uphill. And especially because there's been a lot of excavation on this hill. I joined an excavation, an archaeological dig in 2015 on this hill, Mount Zion. And it's now clear that the houses at the top of the hill were quite well to do, and they all had um, private systems. So there isn't a great deal of point in going down to the Pool of Siloam for water if you want to use it right up the top of the hill, 
especially in the spring, when all the fish tend to be looking quite watery. So the best guess, actually, is that the disciples meet the man with the water here, and then he takes them to a house fairly nearby, around here, where they eat the last supper. Why am I bothered about this? Why am I bothered about this? Well, because after the supper, the disciples go to Gethsemane. And I think that the route that Jesus walked to get to Gethsemane goes a long way to explaining what it was that happened there. So all the Gospels agree that after a meal had been eaten, Jesus and his disciples set out again for the Mount of Olives, heading toward the place at the foot of a hill called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And John's Gospel adds the detail that there was a garden there, and also mentions that Jesus and his disciples went there often. John 18, verse 2. And unlike many places in Jerusalem which make a claim to be the site of an important Gospel, and I'll complain about the whole load more next week. There is every reason to believe that the place pointed out today as Gethsemane is the right place. I'll show you a satellite uh, image of it. So, this is the Temple Mount platform. Okay, and today it has those amazing, beautiful Islamic stones and rocks. But in Jesus' day, it would have been the site of the temple there. So that's what he's doing there. Then this is the Kidron Valley. And if you keep going down, you get to Paul Farlow. And then this is the site of Gethsemane here. There are three roads leading out. We're looking straight from this. So there's Gethsemane. One road goes this way. This way, and another road goes this way up the Mount of Olives to the ridge that leads to Gethsemane. They are very, very ancient roads. So, archaeological investigation has shown that those roads were there in Jesus' time. Now, why is Gethsemane called Gethsemane? Why is it called Olive Press? It could be, possibly, at the outside, it could be because it was one house with an Olive Press. Much more likely, it was a much more significant operation. And, uh, and so, if so, if it was producing a lot of oil, you need roads for distribution. Gethsemane was at the, the site where those roads converge. Uh, a good reason to believe that that is the right place for Gethsemane, the olive press. There's also um, an early account of a Good Friday procession to this place, and a church was built there just as soon as it was possible, more or less, to build Christian churches. One was built there. Um, I'll say more about that in, in a few weeks. So it seems very likely that that is the right place. So, what have we got? What have we got is the last supper is eaten in a house down here, and then Jesus with his disciples takes a walk up the Kidron Valley, up this way, up this way, up the valley. Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. That is the walk that he takes on that fateful night. And if you ever go to Jerusalem, I would highly recommend doing that walk yourself because it does so much for you to help appreciate something of what Jesus was going through that night. Um, if you walk it today, it looks like this. And it can't have been much different then. So you've got the city on a hill on your left, and a steep hill on your right, and the sense is that you're really pressed in as you walk through the valley. And I'll show you what else you see in a minute. And by the time they reach Gethsemane, Jesus is in a terrible state. And he next to the cross. I find this the, the most 
this question of hell in the gospel. And let me read it to you from uh, Mark 14. Only I'm not going to read to you actually. I'm not going to read to you from the NIV. I'm going to read you a translation that I did myself. Not because I think I'm a better translator than the translation of the NIV. Compared to them, I am a rank amateur. If you are making a traditional translation, you have to obey the rules of the target language. And uh, in English, when we put, when we tell an account in the past, we use past perfect tense, and, and it's all very loosey tidy. This happened, that happened. That's what we do. That isn't what Mark does. Uh, Mark quite often uses the present tense, and verbs are sometimes passed in perfect tenses. Uh, it's kind of rough, and so. Um, Thank you. 
to Ray Murphy of Commerce. Um, Amy Gugliel has written a very technical article about source criticism, which has not really been given all that much attention. It's a difficult idea to contemplate the Son of God suffering some kind of mental collapse. Uh, even the other authors of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, seem to turned at tone down uh, Mark's language a bit by their day, by their
seven to nine. We'll continue next week uh, from the high priest Pilate asking the question, who wants to do the dead and why? Asking the question, what really is the Via Dolorosa? And I think we'll also think a little bit next week about Pilate's wife. If there's anybody interested in there. And before we have some real kind of news, I just want to try to say, and if there's anything anybody wants to say, any comments that you have, anything that's broken, anything you want me to clarify, I can try. Give me a way if you want to say something. Jesus is divine, he's able to calm water and storm sea. 
is a question on the back of the sleeve. So that you can discuss it in a pinch and so I don't have to answer it. <laughs> so uh, over to you with that one. Before we can chat a bit later as well. Thank you. 